welcome to summer in Lima. We actually are having temperatures right now that exceeded the whole summer here. So you're, you're experiencing a little of the, the inconvenience. You're in a building that really wasn't created to uh, be used during this time of year. It just, uh, uh, it's a warm place. How do you handle inconvenience? How do you do with that? When something doesn't go your way, you know, there's a certain thing at school you wanted to have happen a certain way and it doesn't go your way or, you know, all at once you're in a room that, you know, where the heck is the air conditioning in this room? And, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you handle that? How do you do with that? That's a big, uh, that's a big question. I, in, in most of my uh, ministry experience, very little of it happens in a convenient way. Usually something inconvenient is happening that kind of sets the stage. And uh, whether it's being in Africa or, or South America or Cuba, you know, I remember when I was in, in Cuba, it was so hot. So hot. And, and you know, they, they, they don't have any new cars or anything like that. So they just take old cars and keep them going. Sometimes all the cloth has been stripped out of the car, the top. And so, so when you drive in a car, I had to drive across the island to get to a place. And when you drive in the car, it's like, it's like being in a metal barrel, you know, at 95 degrees. You're inside a metal barrel driving across the state, you know. And, uh, and of course... You know, it's not like you and the driver. It's you, the driver, and the four other people who needed a ride across the, you know, that are all jammed in the car at the same time. And you're, you know, you're driving across. And I remember when they brought me in and showed me where I was going to sleep. They had a cot in the kitchen. You know. Right there in the kitchen. There I was. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not convenient, you know, it's not convenient. But somehow, if you can rise above that, if you can reach for the gold, basically, when things are not convenient around you, often that's when the greatest harvest gets taken, that's when the greatest possibilities can occur. So today we have a chance to do that. I'm going to share the word with you. We're continuing on vision. The thoughts I'm going to share with you today are some of the most important that I could share with you. And so if you just dig a little deeper and reach a little farther and just see if, if you can get a hold of what I'm talking to you about today, I think it'll be a great, uh, a great help to you. Well, uh, remember we were, we've been talking about Nehemiah, and Nehemiah hears the report of how Jerusalem is suffering, and he knows this is not right, and he wants to help, and, and so he begins to pray, and, and God gives him a vision. He realizes he must be the answer to his own prayer. That's, what, that's the most dangerous thing about prayer, you know, is you have to be willing to be the answer to your own prayer. If, you know, when you say, I'll go pray for this place or this situation, it, it's, there's something about when you come to that place where you say, okay, if it takes me, that's when your prayer becomes very, very powerful. And he realizes that he has to be the answer. And so he, he goes and he talks to the king about the vision that God has given him. And he, he goes to the authority, and the authority releases resources to him. That's where we were when we ended up last time. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'm sure Nehemiah was dancing down the hallway of King Artaxerxes' palace after that meeting. And, 
and he just, you know, received permission and financial provision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And with a few weeks, he and his team were cutting down, within a few weeks, they were cutting down timbers for the gates and beginning their thousand-mile trip to Jerusalem. Just imagine what that was like. The closer he gets, the more concerned he becomes. Now, the reason Nehemiah becomes concerned is up to this point, you know, he got the favor of the, of the king and, and uh, he's done all the work and gotten the wood. But now he's actually going to the city where the people are. And this is the big problem because God has given Nehemiah a plan. And Nehemiah's plan is this. The way he's going to rebuild the walls, it isn't going to be him and his troops that he's bringing with him. The way he's going to rebuild the walls is he's going to ask every family in the city to take responsibility for a little section of the wall that's nearby where they live. And as all the people in the city cooperate, he feels this is the vision God's given him. He feels that they're going to be able to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But as he gets closer to the city, all at once he's thinking to himself, what if they're not on board? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I, what if I can't impart the vision God's given me to them? I can't do this job by myself. It's going to take everybody in the city to be able to do this. And so he's coming in, and that's what's happening. He's worried about things. He's, he's, and, 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 and rightly so. He's worried that maybe he's going to come in, and they're going to look at him and say, who are you? We've been suffering and battling and struggling here, and you're you know, some arrogant know-it-all coming in trying to tell us nobody's been able to rebuild these walls in all these many years, and now you're going to come in and try and tell us that we can do it. And who are you to do it? You haven't walked with us. You haven't been with us. And so he's concerned. Or maybe they're going to think he's some kind of airhead, that he's incompetent, that he, that, that, you know, that he really doesn't have what it takes to pull this off. And so all of this is swirling around in his mind as he comes to the town. And I want us to, to read here from Nehemiah chapter 2. This is in your notes that you have. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 11. So Nehemiah, in his, in his own words, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And so I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, (coughs) inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate. So he's, he's doing like an inspection. He's, he's come. He hasn't really talked to anybody. Imagine, you know, imagine that. He, he's come, and he's, he's, he's going now at night to inspect everything. This place has been torn down. The, the gates have been pulled down. The stones of the wall have been burned, and they're all toppled down. And, and he's going around just looking at all of this. He says, he says, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. And so I went up at night by the ravine, and I inspected the wall. And then I entered the valley gate again, and I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. 
Then I said to them, okay, so he does all this inspection, three days. He gets there. I can't imagine what they were thinking in town. The guy shows up. He's got wood. He's got this. He's got that. But he's not telling anybody what he's doing. He comes into town. At night, he goes and inspects the thing, and finally he comes to the place that he's going to speak to the people, what he's been questioning, wondering, is he going to have what it takes to get them to join him? He says, then I said to them, verse 17, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Okay, so uh, in your notes, recruiting people. First uh, blank in your notes says, when does a leader need to be quiet? Now think about this, how excited he must have been when he came to town. I'm sure he was just overflowing, wanted to tell them all what was on his mind, and, but instead he, he uses tremendous self-control. Uh, you know, think of it. It, it, it. it took for him not to explode onto the scene. And uh, Nehemiah 2, 12, he says, And I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Okay, so when does a leader need to be quiet? You need to be quiet. Now, all of you are going to find, this will be, there'll be situations in your family, there'll be situations in your ministries, Matter of fact, I'm going to share, before we're done here at the end, I'm going to share a story with you. It's so powerful. I just believe something's going to be imparted into many of our hearts. But, but before you talk about something, you need to investigate. And uh, I put in your, uh, I don't know if it's in your notes, but this little phrase, investigate before you initiate. Investigate before you initiate, Right? A lot of times people get an idea and they, well, what do you think about this? And they just start spilling their idea all over the place. They get a little vision. They start talking about it. But the problem is vision at the beginning, before you have worked out the how, is extremely vulnerable. Um, as soon as you start talking about it, people are going to immediately, and it's not because they're necessarily critical. It's just the way people's minds work. As soon as you begin to talk about the vision, people will immediately be trying to poke holes. Well, well, what about this? Or how will that happen? Or what will, you know, how will you do this? Or how will this go on? And so the vision is very, very vulnerable at the very beginning. And so uh, in your notes, it says, number one, investigation. That's the first thing he does. Investigate before you initiate. Investigation protects the vision. Protects is the, is the idea. Once you announce the vision, you open it up for discussion, and you have to be able to answer these questions that that come up when a vision is brought brought up. So you have to be very careful. Remember that when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, when you're doing something new, it's like all the arguments are against you because people are used to what hasn't been done, but they're not used to the new thing that you're trying to bring into the situation. So, so you, before you start just talking about it, you want to at first say, 
listen, I think I have a solution. I think, and, and then he doesn't just come up with a solution in his mind, but he goes, and goes around the walls and he says, now I've got this idea that every family is going to build a little section. Would this work? And he, and he goes around because this is the first time he's actually been there. And he sees the burned down stones and he sees the burned gates and, and he, he goes around and inspects the whole thing to really investigate. Is this idea that is in my mind, is it something that really is God birth? Is it something that can really happen. And so when we investigate, it protects the vision. The second thing that investigation does for us is investigation leads to refinement. That is, when you first get a vision, a lot of times you have the kind of the core idea, the central idea, but you don't have all the details worked out, right? Like, for example, maybe he never even thought about all the stones that would have to be moved. Or maybe he never even thought, maybe he didn't realize the gates had actually been burned with fire. What's that going to mean? And are the stones usable again if they've been burned? Or are they? I, I, he hasn't thought about all this. But when you investigate, all at once you begin to refine a little bit what you're doing. And you start saying, well, you know, hey, I thought, you know, a family could take this length, but now that I look at it, I realize, you know, a family's only going to be able to take this length. It's going to have to be smaller. And that's what investigation does. It gives you time to refine the vision. And then number three in your notes, investigation helps me focus on the central truth of the vision. See, the, 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 the central truth of your vision never changes. The methods and how we're going to do it and what's going to happen, all of that is negotiable. But the central truth never changes. I remember years ago, uh, I used to do these conferences for uh, single people. And um, we, we had, I mean, up to 2,000 people we would have come to these different events. And, and, uh, and so at one of these events, I met this uh, young woman. Her name was Karen. And uh, at the end of this conference, I, I was, I was t talking about singleness and the power of singleness and what God can do with the single season of your life and that kind of thing. And um, at the end of the event, she came up to me and she, says, she said, I don't know what to do, she said, because I've always had a passion for children. And she said, I've lived my whole life thinking about the day I'm going to become a mom. And I want, to, I want to care for kids, and I want to touch kids, and I want to strengthen kids. And, and being a mom, it's just such a big deal for me. And, you know, here I am single, and I don't want to compromise uh, to try and get my way or anything like that. And I, and I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with this passion that's inside my heart. And so I said to her, I said, Karen, I said, uh, I said, I, I, you know, uh, getting married is a lousy goal because you really can't control, you know, the other person. You can't, obviously, people try, but you can't control the other person. You can't. I said, so let's drop back and see what the central truth is. The central truth of your vision is that you really feel you want to care for children. Am I, am I right? You've got a passion for that. Yes, I really want to do that. I said, well, why don't you start doing some stuff for children? I said, uh, you know, take a course at your local community college in early childhood development. I said, start some ministry in your town and community for children. Let's, you know, let's see what, what the Lord might do. So the conference was over with. I left. I never expected I would see Karen again, like many others I've met over the years. I never expected I would see her again. But uh, a couple years later, I'm at another conference, and Karen walks into the room. 
And, uh, and she comes up to me and she says, do you remember me? We talked at such and such. A... And as she talked about it, all once it clicked in, I, I said, yeah, I do remember you. I do. I said, what, you know, what's happened? She says, well, I'm here actually running the children's programming for this conference that we're at. And I said, really? I said, well, tell me, how did that happen? She said, well, you know, when I was with you that last time, I left there, and I, I really took what you said to heart. She said, so I, I, um, I started working with the children in my church more, more. She said, and then I realized that there was some need for some caring for children outside of the church, kind of, kind of reaching out a little bit and helping other churches and things. So I put together this ministry in my town that basically helps churches with events and different kinds of things like that. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. She said, well, it did so good, she said, that I started to be contacted by different kinds of conferences. Um, I think the conference I was actually at where this was happening was, uh, uh, have you guys ever heard of Carmen? It's like a musical, you know, kind of, it's like back, you know, in the old age days. But, but, but anyway, Carmen, Carmen was putting this conference on. He had brought me in uh, to speak. And so he, he, so, so she says, she says, so I've actually been contacted now by different conferences and different things like that, and they bring me in and I put their team together and I run all the children's programming for their conference. And, uh, and I said, well, I said, well, how do you feel about life right now? I'm just so excited. I just, you know, I just feel great about what's happening and the vision of what's going on. Now, I love that story because, you know, here she was. Uh, all dejected, oh, I'm single, you know, I don't, you know, have any relationship, I really feel like I'm supposed to help. And God ends up using her life now in this fantastic way where she touches all of these people, mobilizes all kinds of workers to make things happen, all coming out of her making a commitment to the center. Instead of getting caught up with the marriage issue, she made a commitment to the central thing that was in her heart, which was, I want to help children. I want to work with children. I want to strengthen children. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Okay, what are Nehemiah's keys to a powerful recruitment presentation? This is what's often called vision casting. That is, if I have a vision in my heart and I'm trying to get people to help me in the vision, I have to, do, I have to learn how to do this job called vision casting. That is, I have, to, I have to somehow get them on board with me and what God has spoken to me because there's no vision really of any size that can be accomplished by an individual alone. It's usually it's something that's going to require the involvement of other people and, and connecting with other people. So Nehemiah does vision casting here, and I want us to see what he does because this will help you when you're trying to vision cast the things that God is going to put into your heart. First of all, uh, A, in your notes it says, he, def he defines the need. He defines the need. And then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate <coughs> and its gates are burned by fire. Now, defining the need, what, is, what does it mean? Uh, you know, some, uh, I, I, I think this is a real truth that the first job of a leader is to define reality. That is, what's really happening, right? That's the first job of a leader. When I, when I step into a new situation 
one of the first things I try to do is I try to figure out what is really going on. What's really happening in this situation? What are the strengths that we have? But what are the failures or the weaknesses that we have? And, and try to understand what's happening in the situation. And, 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 and so I can define reality. I can stand up and say, okay, look, we've got some good things going for us, but we've got some real struggles here on our hands too. Why? Because the vision is often the answer to the question that comes when we define the need, if we say what the need is. See, he comes in, he says, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. What does this mean? It means that these people are just the, every bully in the region just comes through. So they have a little harvest, people come through because there's no gates, there's no walls, there's no, people just come through and take their harvest, you know. They go into worship, people just come through and wreck the town when they're worshiping. They, they, they're, they're just like vulnerable, they're totally vulnerable all the time. And so, you know, he, he's saying this is, you know, this is a big problem. But, you know, defining the need is not always really welcomed by everybody. It's like having a house guest who points out everything that's broken, cracked, stained, or outdated, right? I'm sure I could probably walk downstairs in the tabernacle and define the need in a few rooms right now, right? I could walk into the room and go, what in the world is going on in this room? I mean, are you guys, you know, what is the, how many, you know, what's all this piled on the floor? What's the crap all piled? You know, what's the dirt on the, what's the, you know, what in the world, right? What is going on, right? Defining the need. Then offering a solution, right? See, that's the, that's the thing. We have, to, we have to be able to identify what, the th- what is the need. Um, I remember years ago when we were starting BASIC, right? I, 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 uh, I had to define the need. Let me tell you some of the need as I understood it at that time. First of all, there was no intercampus spirit-filled ministry at all. All the ministries that were on the campuses were good evangelical ministries, but there was no spirit-filled ministry at all. There was no spirit-filled worship happening on campuses. Like we joined together right now, we worship the Lord. So none of that was happening on any of the campuses in New York State. They, they basically were, they just didn't have it. They were, you know, because they were coming from like evangelical background, they'd sing a hymn or something like that, but there was nothing contemporary, you know, powerful that was happening. There was no ministry of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the college campuses. The Lord came to me and he spoke to me and he said to me, he said, I want to do a Pentecost on the college campuses. I want to do a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And one of the other things that was really significant to me was all of the ministries that were on campuses were parachurch ministries. What I mean by that is they were not attached to local churches. And so what would happen is a student would go to four years of college, they'd be involved in whatever the Christian group was that was on campus, but when they left school, they didn't know how to plug into a local church because they had never learned how to function within a local church, kind of, and many, many, many people were lost. Besides the tremendous need on college campuses, for many, univers- many, the university is the last stop. If they don't make a decision for Jesus Christ during their university years, they never will after that. If they don't make a decision during that time. So all of this, this was the need, you see. And, and, uh, and God gave me a vision 
for basic college ministry, basically out of that. Something that would work with local churches, something that was spirit-filled, something that emphasized worship. Something, you know, this was all the... Uh, this was how the whole thing kind of unfolded. So it starts out by defining the need. The second thing we see is he states the vision. This is what he says. He says, come let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. So what is a vision? A simple way of saying it is this. A vision is a solution to the problem. Once you define the need, right, once I defined the need of what was happening on college campuses, then I got up and I said, and I have a solution. I think we could do something here with basic college ministries, and it could work with local churches, and, and we could touch the campuses in New York State, and, and I begin to proclaim a solution to the problem, right? First, I have to define the problem so people understand why is what this guy is about to say important, and then I have to give the solution, a vision is a solution to the problem. It's a compelling verbal picture. It touches a felt or perceived need. That's what vision does. Um, I remember back a while ago uh, when we built the uh, church over here, the, uh, the ministry center, Elon Gospel Church Ministry Center. We built this thing, and uh, we're doing everything. You know, we don't have much money trying to make things happen. So we got the whole thing built, got started using it, but all the lawn area outside that you see there was all just dirt. The whole thing is dirt. Dirt with nails in it and broken pieces of construction equipment. And the, you know, it's just a big mess all around the building, right? We finally got in. We got everything there. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, anybody who drives up on this building thinks they're, you know, who, they're visiting the hillbillies or something. You know, I mean, it's like a, it's like a total broken down mess. And, uh, and so I get up in front of the church, right? And I say to them, I say, now, listen, right now, we don't have any grass around this building. Right now, you wouldn't feel safe. If your kids started running across the ground there, you, you would wonder if they were going to survive. You know, if they were going to come out of the other side, what kind of thing would they pick up or what would happen there? And I said, and every guest that comes in, they look at us and they see this beautiful building and then they see this nastiness that's all around us. It, it steals away from the victory of what we've done by putting this building up and making this thing happen. And I said, I have a, I have a vision. I think if I could get 100 people for one morning, for three hours, I think we could do everything that needed to happen here, get this thing all cleared up already so that we could plant grass. Would you consider helping me make this happen? I need 100 people. Or maybe I need 50 people for six hours. But I think if I had 100 people, we could do it in three hours. We could get this whole thing prepared, everything ready to go. Who would be willing to help me make this happen? Aren't you lifting your hands? Yeah, okay. Okay, so you see, what, you see what I'm doing? First I start out saying the need, and then I give a verbal picture. You know, we're going to have 100 people. Yeah, we're, we're going to bring food out there. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be together for three hours. Not going to take up your whole day. It's going to be 100 people for three hours. We're going to take each of our, our little section. We're going to clean this thing up. We could do this in one day if we all agree together. Would you come on Saturday, blah, 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 and help me make this thing happen? Are you with me? See? And so I get 100 people to come and help me. What, what did I do? I gave them a verbal picture of a solution to the problem. Are you with me? 
Here was the problem. The place is all dirty, nasty, broken down. But now I'm giving them a picture of a solution, and I'm inviting them to come in and be a part of this uh, solution. Defining the problem touches your mind. Proclaiming the solution touches your imagination, your heart, and your desire to change um, the now and to release the f future. I can remember with BASIC, you know, when we BASIC first started, I, I actually went to Oswego. I didn't really have a vision for reaching all the campuses in New York State or anything like that. I just went to Oswego to reach the students at Oswego State College. And as we began to do that, then then I said, uh, actually, Elam was very much a part of the beginning of this because I wanted to have a retreat each semester. And so I asked them, uh, the people at the campus here, if they would let me bring students from the secular college campuses onto our campus, have them stay in your rooms. You're all excited about this, I can see. Have them stay in your rooms and, uh, and, and have an event for them, a, a weekend. It eventually became BasicCon, but it started right here in this room. Um, have an event for them uh, right here in, in, in this thing. And so that was the, you know, that was the, uh, the, 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 the dream there. And, uh, and, and, and so we began to do that. And all at once, some people started coming from other campuses. It wasn't really strategic or anything. It just they heard that we were doing this and they wanted to get in on it. So they came here too. And, uh, and so I went one day, I, I heard this, uh, we had, they had a guy preaching here and I was inspired by it. I, one day I went and got a map. Uh, they don't do this anymore. They used to, paper maps, have you ever heard of that idea? Paper maps? Okay, well, anyway, I went and got a, a paper map. Uh, they used to have them at gas stations, right? Pretty soon I won't be able to say gas stations. I'll have to say the electric terminal you plug your car in. Okay, they used to have them at gas stations, right? So, so um, you'd go there, and I got this map of New York State. I took a piece of cardboard, and I taped this map to New York State. And then I went down with a marker, and I marked every college in New York State on this. And then I went to the basic, now, now we're just in Oswego, just a little group of, of students, the leadership team, about maybe six, eight of us. And I went, I, I went and I brought this map to them with all these things and I said, you know something? If we committed, I think we could see a basic group on many of these campuses. And so as a part of our meeting every day, we would, we would put the map down and we would all lay our hands on that map. And we would just begin to pray. Until finally one day, uh, uh, Kathy Stento uh, became Kathy Allport. Kathy Stento said, you know something? I'm graduating this year, and I think I could go to Binghamton. That's where my family is and where I'm looking to get a job. I could go to Binghamton, and I could start reaching out on the campus at Binghamton. And, and then another one said, you know, I think I could go to such and such a campus, and I could reach out there. And that was the beginning. That was how it all started. Kathy left. She went down to Binghamton all by herself, went to her church and got the church interested and involved, went up on campus, began reaching out to students, and before you knew it, a whole basic group was founded on the Binghamton State campus, all because there was a vision that was out in front, and people began to pray, just like we've been reading about, and she realized she could be the answer to this thing, and that whole ministry got birthed and, and tremendous things uh, began to happen. 
Okay, and then the next thing we see is this. He tells what God has done to confirm what they, that they must act now. So, you know, he, he gives them the, he gives them the, describes the need, he gives them the vision, he tells them what God has done. And uh, when I say he tells them what God has done, what do I mean? I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. So he tells them, I've got financial provision, I've got the approval of the authority, God has been with me. Um, th- this could happen right now. And then finally, the last thing he does, D, is he asks them for a commitment. See, it always comes down for a commitment. You can't, you share the, vi- you describe the need, you share the vision, but then you have to look at somebody and you have to say, will you help me do this? You have to ask for a commitment. And so when you ask for that commitment, people begin to join you and jump in. I want to read you a story, a very powerful story, by, um, tells the story of Karen, Karen Bennett. Let me read this story to you. <clears throat> Karen Bennett and five of her friends, okay, so she, she, the, the, she's a young woman, she's about 23 years old, and five friends that have, a, that have this little dream that's in their heart. This could be somebody in this room right now, listen to me. Karen Bennett and five of her friends left the suburbs and moved into an old abandoned nightclub in one of the most dangerous areas of Atlanta. For the previous six months, they had conducted services on the streets for inner city children. During those encounters, God brought greater clarity to the vision he had birthed in Karen during her college days. In time, it became apparent that she was to establish a unique ministry to the inner city children of Atlanta. Karen is single, white, female. At that time, she was 23 years old. Not unlike other Atlanta singles, Karen was saving for her Gucci and driving a Honda. But the emptiness she saw in the eyes of those children was something she could not ignore. As her vision began to take shape, she became convinced that there should be a safe place for children in the middle of what was and continues to be a drug-infested war zone. So Karen and her friends decided to plant a children's church in the inner city. After allowing the idea to incubate for several months, they began looking for a site. Now, in Karen's own words. Month after month, we kept going down there until we felt like it was time to have a church building for those kids. We started looking at old warehouses and old buildings in downtown Atlanta. And finally, we found this one nightclub that just sits in the middle of 25 major inner city projects. I called the owner and I said, well, how much do you want for this place? And he said he needed $2,000 a month in rent. Well, he could have told me it was $2 million. I didn't have that kind of money. I was on a church salary living in an apartment in the suburbs. But on the way home, we each stopped by our banks and cleared out our checking and savings accounts. We, took, we looked for every nickel and dime we could find. And that night, we dumped it all into one pot. And between all six of us, we had $52. Karen contacted a couple of churches for support. They were sympathetic but unwilling to partner with her financially. Nobody was interested in supporting a standalone inner-city children's church. Whereas most single young ladies would have taken this as a, a signal to channel her energies elsewhere, Karen saw it as a test of her commitment to the vision. So she called the meeting. Okay, now in her own words, listen. So it ended up that my staff and I got together that night and we just talked about it. 
It was one of those nights that we just had to be honest with ourselves. Is this what we were going to do? Or was this one of those things that we were just going to talk about until we were 40 or 50 years old? So we decided that we were going to take a chance. Because every once in a while, you got to do that. The next day, we went to our landlords and we handed in our notices to the leases on our apartments. We couldn't afford to have nice apartments and have a church for those kids at the same time. Two weeks later, Karen and her unpaid staff moved into the nightclub. This is her talking now. I remember that when we moved in, it was 20 or 30 degrees outside, and it was about 20 or 30 degrees inside. We forgot to check if the building had heat before we moved in. It didn't have heat, and it didn't have air. It didn't have a toilet, a sink, or a shower. It didn't have anything. We had to drive down to Hardy's to use the bathroom, right? So she's moved into this shell, this building shell, with six of her, six of her buddies. Our new home came complete with cement floors and 17-inch sewer rats. We call them gophers, uh, uh, she says, because, um, the, uh, because of the way they kind of go for you. We kept on trying to get the building upgraded, but nobody believed in us. Our parents thought we'd lost our minds. Sometimes you wonder if you've really heard from God or not. Karen and her staff continued working at their various places of employment. Listen now. On payday, they would bring their checks in and put it into the ministry account. And then they would each take $20 a week for living expenses. On weekends, they began doing door-to-door, uh, -door, going door-to-door -door in the projects, inviting children to their Sunday services. They made 4,000 personal visits every week. Over time, they won the respect and trust of the parents in those communities, and that is how the Metro Assembly got its start. Today, Karen and her 16-member staff uh, minister to over 3,000 children every week in multiple weekend services. They sponsor a youth service, and they draw over 200 teenagers. They established a private school in the community. Tuition is $20 per month, and they have 125 students enrolled and over 500 on a waiting list. But Karen and her staff have paid a price for the success that they are experiencing. Metro Assembly has been broken into over 70 times, 70, 70. Several years ago, Karen was mugged. Three of their staff were beaten up by teenagers who attended one of their services. Most of the windows on their buses have been shot out. Ten of the children who attended their first church service have been murdered. The first funeral Karen performed was for one of her own staff members. Karen's response to all this, listen to what she says. If you decide that God is asking you, what God is asking you to do with your life is just too much for you and is just too inconvenient, then you will never see the miracles he has for you. A vision always requires somebody to go first. Karen's story illustrates this clearly. If you are consumed with a picture of what could be, that's the vision, right? You're consumed with a picture of what could be, and should be in a particular area, chances are God is going to call you to make the first move. This is especially true if the success of your vision depends on the willingness of others to join you. You cannot lead people any further than you are willing to go yourself. You cannot cast a compelling vision for people 
if you have not demonstrated your willingness to make sacrifices and take risks. Isn't that a tremendous story? That's reality right there. Yeah, yeah, amen. That's good, good. Clap. That's good. Listen, I'm telling you right now, in this room, there are people that could do this. You know, I, I went out of here and I started basic. I started another thing called Mobilized to Serve. I was involved in getting this church. I, you know, it, all these things that happened. If you had seen me when I came here, I came from a broken family, a totally messed up. I had failed the first four grades of school, first grade, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade. I was, I, my life was a wreck. These people taught me how to make my bed. They, I mean, I, I didn't have anything, right? But God began to put vision into my heart. And with that, things can begin to happen. Now, you can sit back and say, okay, well, I guess maybe somebody else will do something. You know, somebody else will make things happen. But is it possible that God in his foolishness, you know, God in his foolishness would put his finger down on you with all of your weaknesses, with all of your inadequacies, with all of your failures, with all of the reasons why not, that he might put his finger down on you and say, I've got a vision. Listen, there are many more visions than there are things that are happening. That is, God is putting visions out all over. But who is going to say, okay, I'm not just going to pray about this. I'm going to be the answer. I'm going to step into it. I'm going to give myself. I, I put, I'm, going to, I'm going myself. I'm going to, and then I'm going to ask others to join me. You can't give vision away to somebody else. You have got to step in yourself. And then it can be imparted to other people. They will come and join you. But, but it's not the kind of thing that you can say, well, let me tell you what needs to happen. We need to have an inner city church in Atlanta that touches children. You know. Forget it. That's not going to happen. It's you saying, I will give my life with all of its weaknesses. I will give myself to a purpose, to a vision, to a dream. Listen, there are dreams in this place right now. There are things God's put inside of you that you've self-censored yourself. Ideas that he's put inside of you that you said, oh, well, that can't be me. That's this kind of person or that kind of person. And I'm telling you, God wants to use you if you are willing and if you will say to him, Lord, I will go first. I will go first. Why don't you bow your heads right now just for a moment, would you? You may not have a clear vision right now, but there still is a call that the Lord is bringing to you. And the call is this. When the vision becomes clear, will you go first? Will you go first. Now the vision may not be clear right at this moment, but the question is, it's an attitude, it's a, it's, a, it's a perspective, it's a way of viewing life. And the Lord is saying to you, it's going to become clear, but when it does become clear, are you willing to go first? And if you're here today and you feel like, man, I, I, I need to take a stand today, He's talking about something that's resonating inside of me. I don't even understand why. I don't even have a vision. I don't have clarity. But I feel like there's something inside of me that's ringing. And, and, and it's the Spirit of God saying to you, I'm looking to form in you this attitude of I will go. I will go first. I'll step out. I'll be the answer to the prayer. If you're willing to do that, would you just stand to your feet right where you are right now? 
Just by standing to your feet, you're saying, I will go. I, I'm willing to respond. I'm, I'm not going to push it off to somebody else. I'm not going to say, no, it's somebody else's problem. No, it's, it's, if God spoke to me about it, I will be the answer. I will do it. Lord, all around this room, you've been dealing and speaking to people, forming this mentality, forming this attitude. And Lord, I just ask right now by the power of your spirit that you will seal what you have begun. For some of us, our list of why we can't do it is so long. All of our weaknesses and all of our failures, all the stupid things we've done and everything else, we just we self-censor. God can't even speak to us because before he can get the vision out of his mouth, we've already pasted it shut and said, no, it's, it's uh, not me, I can't do it. But Lord, right now we turn our perspective and we say, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. And if you give me a vision, I will step in. And maybe if it's not me, but it's, it's you give the vision to somebody near me and yet I sense that resonance, I will step in with them. I will respond. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to see it as somebody else's job. I will respond. Lord, I ask you to just seal this thing in our hearts right now. Maybe we'll look back years from now and we'll say, boy, it was in that chapel something clicked for me. I got an understanding I didn't have before. And, and God opened up possibilities for me that I never knew existed. Lord, we thank you for it now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's applaud the Lord. Hallelujah. You are worthy. You are worthy. Hallelujah, Lord. Amen. Amen. Have a great lunch. God bless you.